Over five months ago, we were hit with the harsh reality that we'd have to radically change how we did life together for a period of time. COVID. The question was, when will we be able to come back? Was it weeks, a month, or two? I vividly, I vividly recall the shock and disparaging disbelief when we began to say, you know, I think we need to assume that it will be July at the earliest, and then trying to be optimistic and positive and inspiring, as I said, you know, I think we should just start thinking about September, a welcome back party, a new year. Remember those days? But the whole time, on a deeper track in my mind, I was asking myself, are we really learning what God wants us to learn during this time? Well, September is here and we are slowly, gradually trying to discern a wise way to regather. In many ways, we're still in a, in a fog. And, and for some of us, regathering is still not an option or at least a wise option. That may be why you're watching, listening online today. And, and that brings me back to the question, which has haunted me even more as we have started to regather. Have we learned what God wants us to learn during this time? And do you think we have? Do you think you have? Now, I'm not claiming to know everything God wants us to learn, and I'm sure there are different things he wants each of us to learn, but whether we are in the regather group or the can't yet gather group, we know one thing God wants us to learn, and that he's begging us to hear from him. It's what's behind our Sunday teaching for the next five weeks. It's very simple, basic, but truly radical. In, in the original sense of radical, meaning to the root. Are you ready? There's something more important than coming back to church. It's coming back to me. That's what God is trying to say to you. Whether you feel regathering for you is wise or not, that's the invitation from God. To you, whether, whether you consider yourself an insider or an outsider to church, what, what God is wanting you to hear from him is it's not just about coming back to church. It's about coming back to me every day. Is church important in that? Well, it's supposed to be, but it can also prevent it. And not in the way we're probably thinking. It can sometimes times be something that we use as an easy substitute, a shortcut. We can come back to church without coming back to God, to the home our heart longs for, to the relationship your heart was created for. So as we begin this teaching, I would like us to listen to Renee tell her story of discovering in Jesus the relationship with God she was created for, and then also in the church, the place to grow more fully into that relationship. Let's listen to Renee's story. So I'm from Langley, BC. Uh, I grew up with a loving family and attentive parents who supported me throughout uh, my swimming career. Um, so my swimming was a huge part of my life and it was my absolute passion. I spent many hours uh, weekly and uh, competitions every month and 
yeah, it was just a, a huge time commitment. And I'm just, yeah, so grateful to have that opportunity in my life. And it even got me to the point where I accepted a scholarship uh, to U of A here in Edmonton uh, back in 2017. And so I started my bachelor's degree here at U of A um, and then pursuing my passion for swimming. I found my way to God uh, through an invitation. I had a friend who invited me to Young Life and uh, in my grade 10 year. And for a couple months, I was exploring the Christian faith and kind of just hearing about Jesus and uh, who he was and what he did for us. And it was when I went to winter camp at the end of my grade 10 year um, that I first met Jesus. And that's when I began my per personal relationship with Jesus. Um, and yeah, from there, I uh, was reading the Bible and I was learning how to pray and all these uh, new dynamics um, that were so new to me in my world. So in some ways, um, I've arrived. Like God is with me and I'm with Jesus and it's so great. Uh, but in others, I haven't. Um, it's so essential to being a part of the body of Christ and finding your way back to God every day. Um, and so, yeah, Ellerslie's just really taught me uh, what's that really about and what it means and reflects what that looks like. So uh, in September of last year, I started attending Ellerslie. Um, I began attending regularly on Sundays. I joined a small group in our young adults ministry. I began serving in our uh, youth ministry. And now as a few months ago, I'm on staff. And it's just, it's so cool how God has worked um, in this season of life for me. And it just kind of blows me away sometimes because to think of where I was just a few years ago to where I am now, um, yeah, just so grateful for how, how God has done that. And I feel like a huge part of it is just how Ellerslie functions. So the people here are just so warm, welcoming, and dedicated to living an authentic life following Jesus. And yeah, I one of the things that I've learned actually it really stuck with me was when we did our base camp series. Um, and just, uh, I remember this one verse in Jeremiah where we just talking about how he just loved uh, reading the word of the Lord and just genuinely um, had joy while reading it. And so one of the things that we were encouraged to do was start a triad group. And so to this day, um, my triad group and I are still super tight. We talk all the time and yeah, I'm just so grateful that we have this group of accountability and especially through this year, um, just been so grateful for how that um, has happened and how God has just uh, really spoke um, through our leaders here in the church. And um, Ellerslie is a place that I call home and I just absolutely love every single person here. And I'm just so grateful that my role here is now facilitating that welcome back environment for other people who are now entering our doors here at Ellerslie. The one thing that I would love people um, to hear and latch on to is get connected. Get connected in your church family um, and really just live out um, how Jesus commands us to. To not only participate in events and just show up, but get connected in a small group, um, get a triad, um, uh, make sure you have people to hold you accountable, um, serve in different ministries, whatever God has gifted you with, and yeah, just really invest in your church because that's how God designed us and that's what Jesus commands us to do. Because finding your way back to God is not only just by yourself, but it's within a church community and with other people. And it's something that has to be done every day. It's not just a final destination, but it's an everyday practice.
Thank you, Renee, for being willing to share your story with us. Those, those kinds of stories are what keep me going and the kind of story that I dream of each one of us being able to tell about ourselves, our journeys of life in Jesus, growth into living the life of Jesus, and the stories we want to help others experience. Renee talked about our base camp teaching series and how the habits, the practices we talked about are so significant in our journey with God. But habits alone do not produce results. Habits are outward behaviors, doing kinds of things. They are good. They are necessary. But habits, disciplined practices, outward behaviors are only helpful, beneficial when we allow them to surface and deal with the the inner processes in our heart that are flawed. What's the difference between practices and processes? Between outward habits and inner processes? Well, let me tell you a story. It doesn't explain everything, but it does illustrate a piece of that. When my kids were younger, I used to coach basketball in, in a developmental league and it was, it was a great system. It, it was all about developing the habits that would eventually produce the results. Uh, when our daughter got to grade eight in a small school that had never had a girls' basketball program, they asked me if I would help them get a program going, starting with putting a grade eight girls' team in the city league. I wasn't at all sure about it because at the grade eight level, every school, small to big, in the whole city were in the same league. But I had a secret weapon. There, there was this guy I'd been getting to know who had been the local college coach, and he'd retired for family reasons, uh, and, and, and who had sent signals that he'd like to spend some time with me. And so I, I said to him, sure, we could spend time with each other, coaching together, grade eights. He bit. He'd be the head coach, and I would be his assistant. So he couldn't get there the first two weeks. So we agreed on a practice plan, and I started off. 12 girls showed up. Okay, we got the numbers. Only three girls, though, had ever touched a basketball before, but I had done the development coaching, so I knew what to do, and we got to work. Halfway through the first practice, more than half of the girls had left the court and were in the bathroom crying. So we took a break. I gave them five minutes. But only half of them came out, and I couldn't go into the bathroom. After the practice, I realized I had a problem. My most immediate problem was I didn't know if I'd have anybody coming back to the next practice. And I went, went home and talked to LaDonna and said, I don't know what I'm going to do. What's going on? She said, well, first of all, they're girls, not boys. You coach them like they're boys. I said, but I've worked with both girls and boys. I've never had this problem. She said, yes, but they're not only girls. Or, or, but they're only girls, not girls and boys together. And they're 13-year-old girls with some internal issues going on that they don't even quite understand themselves. And the next day she said, Mel, there's another big difference between what you've done before and what you're trying to do now. You've always coached them on Saturday mornings. This is after school and they're hungry. Most of them, regardless of what their parents try to do or say, haven't eaten properly all day. We got to get something in their system. And so the next practice, we did two things. Number one, LaDonna provided oranges to start the practice. And number two, all on my own, 
I did something I'd never done before. I thought it was a crazy thing doing. I didn't even want to test it off anybody before I did it. And when I'd done it and told the other coach later, I said, please don't tell any of the other, our other coach friends what I did, okay? It was not only an outside-the-box thing for me. I wondered if it would be a waste of time because we had to get these girls ready for our first game in two weeks. They didn't even know the rules of the game, let alone the mechanics of playing the game. But I was desperate because I did not want a repeat of two days ago. I was so relieved when we got there that only two girls had dropped out. And we started with the oranges. And after they'd eaten their oranges, I said, okay, let's get around the center court circle and sit down in a circle. And I'd like everyone to just, let's go around the circle and answer two questions. Number one, what color best describes your day? And number two, why? Nothing to do with learning the game of basketball. Nothing to do with learning the, the habits and practices though they desperately needed to implement. But I got a clinic that day on the inner processes of a 13-year-old girl. I'll never forget the last girl's words. Everybody got into it and they described the colors of the day. All different colors, all sort of different reasons. And the last girl said, well... The start of my day was like so-and-so. It was blue. And she said, why? But then by the time I got to school, it was red. Because, and she described some anger thing that ticked her off. And she basically went through the day with all of the colors of the rainbow and wrapped it up by saying, I'll never forget it. I guess if I had to pick one color, when you put it all together, I'd have to say it was brown because I kind of felt, and she named what's in your mind when you hear brown. I didn't know what to say, so I just said, wow, thank you guys. And hoping that by this time the oranges would have had their desired effect, I said, so are you ready to have some fun? We went back to the same practice, the same mechanics we had worked on two days ago, and not one girl fled to the bathroom, and not one more girl quit. And the stage was set for the real coach to come in. And at the end of the year, with a buzzer beater shot, the girl whose day was brown scored the winning basket for the city championship. That's the game of life, friends. We work so hard on the outward things, even good outward things. The right behaviors and practices like base camp practices. But unless we understand and address the inner issues, the internal processes, those practices will actually produce nothing. Well, they may produce what we will all truly fear. They may actually produce hypocrisy. Living a find my way back to God everyday life begins with, what's understand, with understanding what's going on in here. This morning, we're going to introduce the coming back to God everyday process by answering three questions. Number one, what is it that makes coming back to God every day necessary? Number two, what is it that makes coming back to God every day possible? And then very briefly, what is the core coming back to God every day process? What does it involve? So let's begin by spending most of our time on that first question. What is it that makes coming back to God every day necessary? 
We have to begin our thinking about that question by asking another question. Where do I need to come back to? Or where do I need to come back to God from? Where do you need to come back to God from? It's not a trick question. Where do I need to come back to God from? I need to come back to God from where I am. Duh. Right? But think about it. That is what we need clarity on, isn't it? Every once in our house, the conversation goes like this. One member of the couple says, would you please come here for a minute? And I say, sure, where are you? And the other one says, I'm here. Uh, okay. <laughs> if you're talking to a friend you haven't seen in a while on the phone who says, hey, I'm in Edmonton. Can we connect? Absolutely. And they say, how do I get to your place? Your first question is, well, where are you? You see, the question is, where are you relative to where I am? Do you know where you are relative to God? If after we're done this morning, someone says to you, where do you think you need to come back to God from? How would you answer that question? Do you know where you are relative to God? It's not an easy question to answer, is it? Or, or at least it's not an easy question to talk about because the basic thing that keeps us from coming back to God is that we really really don't know our own hearts or we're afraid that we might be right about what we think we know about our hearts but don't want to admit. And what we've done is to, is to look for ways to think, truths to believe that, that tell us something different than what we are afraid is true because we shouldn't feel bad about ourselves, right? That's like when, if you have a broken leg and feel a lot of pain, someone says, well, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be hurting, so let's treat the pain. Jeremiah the prophet, writing to people who say they believe in God. They were God's people, but it, they'd wandered away from God in their behaviors, and they were probably excusing themselves, saying, hey, we believe in God. We're okay. We're God's. Jeremiah said, the heart, or as the New English translation says, the human mind, the heart encompasses everything from emotions, feeling, thinking, desires, everything internal. The heart, he says, is more deceitful than anything else and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So here's the problem. We've we got to begin with where we are in our hearts, but we really can't get our own hearts. We've developed ways of thinking in our hearts about our hearts that, that helps us cope with the pain, but that don't deal with the problem. Even though our thinking should lead towards, towards solutions, it's actually our thinking that becomes part of the problem. As the American philosopher of another generation, Williams James, puts it, a great many people think they are thinking, but they're merely rearranging their prejudices. We see that in, in, in the responses we hear to the coronavirus, right? People take one little piece of data, a piece of data that fits their prejudice, and they camp on that one piece because it confirms what they want to believe. That's what we do with our hearts. Now, when it comes to what's going on inside, we are complicated beings. We've got to get that on the table, okay? We, we naturally gravitate towards simplistic solutions. 
The human heart or internal thinking, desiring, feeling, and dreaming, that's a huge subject. I recognize that. But it helps if we can at least have a clear place to begin, doesn't it? There is one place to begin, always. It's understanding where I am relative to God. Paul identifies the core issue in in the book of Romans, chapter 1. I'd I'd invite you to turn here. The book of Romans is one of the letters in the New Testament. Uh, Take your Bible app or take your Bible. Paul is talking in Romans 1 about why it is we get so screwed up in our thinking about ourselves, our feelings about ourselves, and about God. In In his direct style, with his analytical mind, Paul zeroes in on where we really are, the default setting of every human heart that we never fully recover from. The place to begin when we ask the question, where do I need to come back to God from? Writing to this church in Rome, talking in the context of the Roman culture about the place that all human cultures always go, he says this. Let's begin at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth. What truth? We're going to read a little bit later about what truth he's talking about. The truth, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be made known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. The wrath of God. What is God's wrath as it talks about here? It's simply, as we sometimes say, it's simply God taking his hands off and saying, okay, you want to have it your way? I will let you experience the consequences of having it your way. And that's fair. Because, as he says in verse 19, since what has been made known about God is clear to them, because God's made it clear to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Letting us have it our way is fair, because all around us we can see evidence that there must be a God. It's not that he's left the scene. He's waiting for us to see that evidence and say, whoa, I wonder if there's a way back. Verse 21, for although they knew God, what did they know? Did they know things about God? No, it's not what they knew. It's who they knew. They knew God. It doesn't say they knew what God required doing the right things. Although they knew God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds and animals and reptiles. You see, What they did, it says, they made an exchange. The truth of God, God as the one and only core truth, the place to begin. They exchanged the glory, beauty, greatness, goodness, and love of God for something less, something they could see and touch and feel. And then he gets to the heart of the issue. Verse 23, or verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Not truths about God, but the truth of God. The truth of God himself 
for a lie. Now, if you know your story, the human story as, as the creator tells it and reveals it to us, you will know exactly what Paul is referring to. He's not just talking about the Roman culture. He's talking about humanity. From the beginning, he's referring to how the evil one deceived God's first original human, created as God's perfect reflection on earth. Not God's, but mirrors of God, reflections of God, pointing to God, representatives of God, to rule creation for God, not for ourselves. A perfect creation in harmony with nature, in harmony with each other, in harmony with their own inner hearts, because they were in harmony with God. And, and part of being in tune with God was to recognize they were not God, but they were under God, with God. And what did the evil one do when he came into this garden setting? He deceived them by leading them to question that very command of God that was to make sure they recognized God as God. He created and surfaced in them an appetite, a compelling desire to have that one thing. Why? It wasn't because of the one thing. It was because of what, thing, what that one thing represented, that they were to be under God. Because he convinced her that God was holding out on her. That she could actually become, replace the need for God by deciding for herself what was best for her. They changed the truth about God for the core lie that they knew what was best for themselves. They did what? They made an exchange. An exchange they thought would free them, but in the end, it limited them. I love the way Daryl Johnson puts it in, the, in his book, The Story of All Stories. He says, in choosing to become independent creatures, we actually became dependent on the self. And self-dependence, he says, is chiefly expressed in self-preoccupation, which is a terrible captivity. And then he says this, we sinned into existence a creature that was never intended to exist. A creature centered on itself. Well, that's talking about Adam and Eve, but, but that's not me. I, I believe in God. Well, okay, you believe in God? Do you believe what God says? Later on in the book of Romans, Paul puts it this way, talking to those who say they believe in God. He says, whatever does not come out of faith is sin. Faith. It's not talking about believing in God for something. It's trusting, resting, acting on the basis of who God is. Tim Chester, in his book, You Can Change, says behind every sin, every sinful pattern of behavior, every not working for me pattern of thinking is a lie, a lie about God. The root of all our behavior and emotions in the heart, what it trusts and what it treasures. Last week, as Dave finished our teaching series on the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, the closing scene of the book, he pointed out a haunting truth we are left with at the end of the book. John, the apostle who hung in there with Jesus, who was met by Jesus, who lived with Jesus and was given these incredible insights and visions to share with us in the closing scene of the book. He's visited by an angel and he's powerfully moved and he falls down and worships the angel. And the angel says, John, don't do that. 
I'm just a fellow servant with you, a fellow servant of God. I'm just a created thing like you. Worship God. Folks, if John, after all his experience with Jesus, has the tendency to worship something less than God, something that's right in his face that he thinks is beautiful, do you not think that we might have that tendency? Do you not think that is at the end of the book to remind us of how our story gets off track and how that is the tendency we'll always need to come to terms with? The old hymn puts it in a way that always haunts me. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So where do you need to come back to God from? What is your leaving the God you love tendency? Do you know it? Some of us are closer than others to being willing to answer that question because, because we've been, become comfortable about talking and, and, and exploring our inner feelings and emotions. Teenage boy invited me to connect with him on Instagram a while back, and, and it was somebody I knew. And, and this past week, I reached out and asked him how he was doing with the, with the back-to-school process and how I could pray for him. He talked about some specifics, and then he said, it's really getting me concerned and anxious. Wow. I thought that's pretty transparent for a teenage guy. Because one of the steps to knowing where we need to come back from is having insight to recognize it and, and putting it out there. What is really going on in here? What is it? Is it, is it control issues like, like the things that surface anger and manipulative behavior and stubbornness? Is that what's going on? Is it fear, worry, and anxiety? Is it simply dissatisfaction, discontent, pursuing love in all the wrong places? Is it always feeling like I have to prove myself? Those are some of the core things that are going on in our heart, aren't they? Can you identify with any of those? Seeing and recognizing those thinking patterns are the place to begin in understanding where you are. We're going to pick up on that in a few minutes and peel the layer one, uh, peel the onion back one more layer. But before we do that, Let's quickly answer the second question. What is it that makes coming back to God possible? Well, in the original account, or the original exchange we made, we see a hint about that. When God turned Adam and Eve over to the consequences of their choice, he did not leave them without hope. He came to walk with them as he usually did, and he asked them the question, Adam, where are you? What? He asked him that. Adam, where are you? Can you see why that's such an important question? It's the question God asks of us. Why does he ask that question? I love again what Daryl Johnson says about that. He says, the point here is that God still wants a relationship. Obviously, he knows where they are and where we are. God asks this question, he says, to draw us back into relationship because we are afraid and feel such shame. God draws us rather than drives us out of hiding. Adam, do you know where you are relative to me? Adam knew where he was. And he knew he was busted naked before God, which was not a problem before because he had nothing to hide. But intuitively, he knew he needed to hide. And he covered himself with leaves and then God does one more thing, a totally 
out of the blue thing that signaled where this story was going to go. It says the Lord God made garments of skin and clothed them. He took off the things they had covered themselves with to hide from him, and he exchanged them for animal skins. Why? To do what? Well, the answer to that question comes from another question. Where did God get the animal skins from? From a dead animal. An animal that God had killed in order to cover their shame so they could remove their fear. Along with the wrath of God allowing them to experience the consequences of sin, because they engaged the truth of God for a lie. God makes an, another exchange for them, an exchange that involves the shedding of blood, a death that will bring life, a signal of how the curse brought on by the serpent would, revert, would be reversed by the descendant of a woman that God has told the serpent about. What is it that makes coming back to God possible? It's an exchange that God in history, in humanity, made for us in Jesus. In the book of 1 Peter, Paul says, puts it this way, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered for once for sins, the just, the righteous, on behalf of, in exchange for the consequences of the unjust. Why? To bring us back to God. In the earlier chapter, he talks about Jesus in this way. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? So that we might stop sinning and live for righteousness by his wounds. He says, you are healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you have turned back to the shepherd and guardian of, her, of your souls. You have turned back because you have exchanged what Jesus did for the consequences that God allowed you to experience. Do you know Jesus in that way? That's what Renee was talking about when she came to know Jesus. There is only one way to come back to God from where you are. And from wherever you are, it is the same way. And it's possible by simply acknowledging that you have gone your own way and that it's not ultimately going to work and accepting that you can't get there your way and accept the exchange God offers you in Jesus, your true lover and your only real leader. Have you done that? Have you made that exchange with God and, and given him your heart? Folks, some of us have done that. We've accepted that exchange and, and we need to hear that and reaffirm that because we have settled for living still with leaves, hiding our true self, still covering up and still acting like what Jesus did on the cross simply covers it up. And now we're okay as we are. We say that because we have decided that it's not possible to change. And so we've just settled for a subpar relationship with God. What does Peter say? He died so that we might stop less than helpful, sinful, sinful patterns, not just of behaviors, but thinking patterns in their hearts about God. And live in and for righteousness. Jesus, Jesus did not die just to cover up your unrighteousness. He died, says John in first chap, John chapter 1, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which leads to question number three. What is the core 
coming back to God every day process. That's what the next four Sundays will flesh out. But, but just a quick answer. You actually know it already if you're following the logic of the first two questions. Number one, if exchanging the truth about God for a lie is what makes coming back necessary, if what God did in, in and through Jesus on the cross is to exchange my consequences for his life to restore that relationship and that makes coming back possible, then does it not make sense that the process of experiencing the glory and freedom and life of that exchange every day simply means exchanging the lies that we still believe deep in our hearts about God for the truth about God? And now we need to come back to that transparency level that we got to about where we need to come back to God from. Control and anger issues, fear and anxiety issues, dissatisfaction and unfulfilled desires that we feel the wrong way, always needing to prove myself. We're getting somewhere when we admit those, but we need to see that although what we feel, although they are what we feel, they are not where we are. They are signals of where we are. They are symptoms of the problem. They are not the core problem. To identify where I am relative to God, I need to peel one more layer down and identify what is the lie about God that I'm still continuing to believe deep in my heart that has me stuck in this rut and exchange it for the truth about God that I really need to trust. I may know the right words and the right Bible truths, but I'm not yet believing them fully. Folks, I don't know how you're processing COVID season. I, I've told you before that for me, fog is the best way to describe it. But do you know what the gift of fog is? The fog keeps you from seeing the things that you normally see. And God invites us to say, okay, let's take this time to see what's in here and allow you to be exposed to what it is you've entrusted instead of me, what you have subtly exchanged for God. What is it you have exchanged for God? Well, basically, it's whatever you think you can't live without. That's what stimulates fear and anxiety. That's what prompts controlling anger responses. That's what surfaces dissatisfaction and discontent. And that's what makes us try to prove ourselves to somehow let God believe that we're worth something. This week, would you just start somewhere? If you have to start, if you don't know where to start, start maybe by saying, what killer is my day and why? Identify the one thing that comes to mind about God that speaks to that. Visualize yourself. You're giving yourself, giving that to God and saying, you know what? I want you more than this thing. For some of us, this question might prompt us to, to explore a, a, a one of our semester courses, Freedom Sessions, and sign up for that. It's a, it's a course that talks about how to live in the truth that sets you free. Whatever it takes, folks, would you... Just begin to allow yourself to see what it is in your heart that you have exchanged for the truth about God and, and just say, thank you, Jesus, for making the exchange that can set me free from that. And open yourself to exploring that more fully the next couple of weeks so that you can live in the truth 
that sets you 